If you will open your Bibles, we are in Matthew. Surprise, surprise. I'm looking at you, Mimi. So we're going to be in the end of chapter 22, and uh, things are really speeding up uh, in, in not in my preaching. <laughs> I know you guys should hear the jokes that come out at, at our life group on Thursday night. But no, it is that the events are speeding up. Uh, this is the Passion Week. These are the last few days of the Lord's earthly life. We're on Wednesday. He gets betrayed in 24 hours from, from this time where we're at right now in Matthew. And uh, so things are really starting to kick, kick into gear here, all right? So that's where we're at in Matthew. We're in Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. And uh, let me read it now. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, Well, that's easy, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Lord, thank you for what we've already celebrated this morning. God, these, some of these songs are just, they just draw my heart uh, towards you. It, they fill my heart with praise to be reminded in different ways and, and through the, the, just the power of song, of music, God, to uh, just, just draw my affections, my emotions, my intentions, my thoughts, to draw them towards you. And God, now in, our, in, in the word here, Lord, I thank you for the record we have of your life, Lord Jesus. And Lord, seeing this incident that draws to a close uh, uh, just a series of events where you are being demonstrated through your teaching, through your, your, just your interactions here on this, this fateful week. Lord, on the Temple Mount, God, we thank you for what we see here happening. The master teacher, the great shepherd of Israel, demonstrating his, his authority, his power, his mastery of the word. And God, to draw out even more uh, and to, to emphasize not only uh, that you are a, a man, but you are God. Lord, I just pray that we wouldn't miss it, that we wouldn't have the same reaction that these Pharisees did, but Lord, that we would fall at your feet and just call you Lord and Savior and worship you. So God, open our eyes as we go through this, Lord, continue to change our thinking, to renew our minds and to transform us into your image. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been, just to remind you, we've been off of uh, Matthew here for several weeks but to remind you, in Matthew 22, this, this passage we're looking at today is really drawing to a close a, a unit in Matthew's gospel. Let me remind you that the, the gospels, there's four of them, when they were written, each one of the writers emphasized different things about, different things about the Lord's life. They had a different purpose, each one of them. All the facts that they recorded were true, but they had a different audience, Matthew's audience were Jews. He was there to prove, to give a defense to the Jews. Hey, Jesus, that was crucified. Because remember, Matthew wrote this about 10 years later. That Jesus you crucified was indeed the Messiah. 
He was crucified, but he had to be crucified, and you can still believe in him. Don't reject him. It's a, it was a, an apologetic. It was also for the new believers in the Jewish church, because remember, the earliest church was almost totally Jewish converts. It was a way of showing them, out of the Old Testament, how this Jesus was the Messiah. And even though he was crucified, because again, in the Jewish mind, if someone was crucified, what were they considered? Cursed by God, Deuteronomy 18. And he, they were, he was showing, Matthew was showing out of the Old Testament, hey, he might be cursed by God, but that was God's plan all along for the Messiah. That's why there's so many allusions to the Old Testament, okay? So we're in a unit here of Matthew's gospel. Go ahead and go to the next slide. We're in a unit of uh, chapter 21 through the end of chapter 22 where it's, they are coming, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes are all coming at him and saying, what right do you have? By what authority did you just clear out the temple? Because remember, he just done that. And remember, when he cleared out the temple, it was a public confrontation, a public shaming of the religious establishment. He said, you have turned God's temple, my father's house, which is supposed to be a place for the nations to come see and know the Lord Yahweh. You have turned it into a den of thieves. He called them despicable. It was a slap in their face in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Remember, this is Passover week. Josephus, from a, just about 20 years later, gives us an estimate, just a, a picture, that Jerusalem would swell to about 2.6 million people. This little capital city would just swell. So this was such a public confrontation. And they're saying, who do you think you are? And that's what the confrontation has been happening here over the last, you know, this, these two chapters, and there's been a confrontation going on where Jesus is calling them out as six shepherds, because remember, the religious leaders, they were called shepherds of Israel. That was the point. Matter of fact, that's my title, pastor. You know what that means? Shepherd. I pastor the flock. It's the same in the New Testament. He's calling out these shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, calling them sick and blind guides. And he, as the true shepherd, was showing himself. In the last few passages, we had them come to him with three tests. The first one was about the Pharisees, some of their disciples came with the Herodians, and they held up a coin, you know, they, or they didn't hold up a coin, Jesus said, hey, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus masterfully answers their question. Render unto Caesars those that are Caesars, render to gods those are gods, right? We talked about that. Then the next one, it's the, it's the Sadducees coming up to him. The question about the resurrection, trying to make it look silly to believe in the resurrection, and Jesus answers that masterfully. Then we have the, the uh, scribe come up, and this is the third test, but we see something happen in this scribe. We, we get this from actually from the book of Mark. We don't see it in Matthew, but we see the rest that Mark records, that this lawyer comes to try to say, hey, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers it masterfully, saying, yeah, it's to love the Lord your God with all that you are. And a second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. He tied. If you really love God, you have to love your neighbor. And if you don't love your neighbor, you don't literally love God. First John makes a huge point about that. So don't tell me you love God if you ain't loving your neighbor. But Jesus does this. And what does the scribe say to him? This lawyer, we find from Mark, I went over this, 
says, wow, you're right. You said it well. You know what Jesus said to him? Ah, you are not far from the kingdom. That's why I called it converting a lawyer. So we see that in those three tests, Jesus has proved he knows Torah better than they do. And then this week, we see him taking Torah, again, Scripture, and he's showing them something out of Scripture they didn't even know. Again, proving, again, when we think of Messiah, we think, well, Jesus is the Messiah. But again, the Jewish expectation of the Messiah to come was to be mainly a political leader. He was going to conquer whoever the enemies were and set up the glorious kingdom again. But Jesus is showing all throughout his life, but especially coming down to this whole segment, that he is much more than that. Scripturally, he's much more than that. So we can't miss what's going on here. We also want to highlight today that in Jesus' answers to them, we have to see the importance of knowing the Word of God when you answer questions that your friends ask you about life, about issues, okay? Because I don't want us to miss this. When you look at how Jesus responded to questions, he was always referring to the Word of God. You guys, he's our example. So many of you will send me questions, and I love helping you with your answers, but let's not miss that what, what happens here that, that Jesus is showing us we should be thinking first, how would God answer the question I'm being asked? So when someone asks you, well, I believe this, you know, what is, what, you know, is that okay? And then, you know, instead of you just spouting your opinion, what should your first thought be? What does God say? Right? And, and working through that. So I want us to see that and be challenged to grow in this area. If you don't know how to do that, that's okay. Let's start the process of growing in, in learning how to do that. Okay, so there's some of the things that I want us to highlight this morning as we walk through this passage. Okay, we set? All right, so Matthew has been so intentional and so driven to, to, to make us look at Jesus differently, hasn't he? He has, been, he has been laying out through his miracles, through his teaching, that Jesus is so far above anything else the people have seen and heard. Every time Jesus taught, what was the reaction of just the general public? Ah, yeah. He doesn't teach like those scribes and Pharisees. He teaches with authority. Because here's the deal. Whenever they taught, they're always citing. And I, I do that too. I quote people who I respect. And, but they were constantly saying, well, so-and-so said this about this passage. And so-and-so, it was always unprecedented. But Jesus says, you have heard that, they, uh, you have heard that it was said, but... I tell you, he showed that he had authority to teach and the people were amazed because not only that he claimed to do that, but in his teaching, it was so evident. They're like, yes, this is right. The question that Matthew wants us to consider, is Jesus truly the Messiah? And is he more than a mere man? And I know the answer is obvious, but again, we have to see what's behind all this. On Wednesday, the last couple days of his earthly life, in this final portion of the confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus unmistakably unveils from Scripture his identity while at the same time defeating his opponents. The king himself shows, he shows, the king shows himself to be the master teacher and the divine Messiah in this section. On the Temple Mount, Jesus comes as the true shepherd of Israel and exposes these six shepherds. But at the same time, we are driven also to decide for ourselves, based on what we've seen and heard, what do you think about this Jesus? But hasn't that always been the question? 
He asked the disciples in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Right? Everything hinges on what you decide about Jesus. Not just for salvation. That, I hope it's very clear. Hear always that I say that there's only one way for salvation to get to the Father through Jesus Christ. I, I know that that's clear. But if you're a Christian, if he's called Lord, Savior, Messiah, King, that should, it ought to, it has to make a difference in your daily life. You cannot come here on Sundays and then live differently during the week. I'm not talking about perfection, just so we clarify that. You will make mistakes, you will sin. Why? You're breathing. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but the point is, is how does he rule as king over your life during the week? Because he is the king. That's not up for debate. And if you're a Christian, you say you follow him. Following means in the Bible, to follow means to imitate and obey, Okay. So we're, we're in, this, in this gospel that is more than just, here's how you get saved. It really is also telling us, here's how you live. Our church is obviously, and I hope it's obvious, to, uh, uh, obviously devoted to preaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ, both as Lord God and sole Savior. There's a, a godly man of the past, you'll recognize his name, most of you maybe, says this. And this was from his very first sermon when he took over as the new pastor. I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, he was up on a raised platform, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself as a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I asked what is my creed, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. My venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, has left a theological heritage admirable and excellent in its way. But the legacy to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Jesus Christ, who is the arm and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth. Spurgeon. Ever heard that name? Called the Prince of Preachers, the greatest preacher from the 1800s, early 1900s. Amazing. But so I say the same thing. May that be true of our church. And it will be as long as I'm in front of you yelling at you. I mean, teaching. <laughs> so let's walk through this passage today and, and see our king and his interaction with the religious leaders. We will see his amazing wisdom and insight into scripture. His patience with those who oppose him and be driven to decide for ourselves as to our response to his claims over us, over our lives and eternity. So, first of all, we look at Jesus' question, and again, the scene is, he's been being, he, they've been testing him, but now he goes on the offense. He's turning the tables on them. What, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, why were they gathered together? Look at the previous verses. Why did they gather together again? They had gathered together earlier, and then they went on the offense. Now they gathered together again. Why? Because they'd been defeated so soundly. They're trying to say, uh, uh, what do we do now? And, and maybe they're going to come up with a new attack, but that we see that Jesus instead, while they're gathered together, he goes after them. 
Again, remember the scene. You guys have to picture what they are feeling, what they are experiencing. These are the men who walked around, chest out, look at me. Jesus constantly used them as examples. Hey, don't be like them. They're so arrogant. When they tithe, how did they tithe? Privately? Secretly? No, they would make sure that there's these, these big jars, these brass jars by the temple entrance that you dropped your coins. It would you make all this noise. They're, you know, every time they do, they have horn, you know, pronouncing, look at me! You know, everything they did was to be noticed, to have external glory from man. So when Jesus confronted these religious leaders, and it's not just the common Pharisees that he's confronting, these are the men who are part of the Sanhedrin. These are the ones who are at Jerusalem, the headquarters. These are the high and mighty. These are the men who are on, like I've said, they're the ones with baseball cards with their faces on it. They're the ones on the nightly news. These are the stars, and Jesus has absolutely embarrassed them. Absolutely, totally. That's why they tried to go on the attack to regain their position with the people. And when they kept losing, they get ticked. But why didn't they go get Jesus? Why didn't they go after him right away? There was a phrase in there each time it happened. They were afraid of the people. If Jesus really was a heretic, they should have cared so much about God's word and God's you know, you know, reputation that what should they have done right away? They should have got him and stoned him for blasphemy. But Jesus had proved himself so utterly different and his teachings so utterly accurate, they couldn't do anything. So that's the scene. Don't forget, Jesus now has to go, or he doesn't have to, he's going on the attack. And they're reeling. They've just been answered. They, again, they're using, they, in their attacks on him, they had used their best weapons, their best, hey, stump the pastor kind of question. If we ever have a, a Q&A night like we've had in the past, you can stump me real easily. <laughs> but they couldn't stump Jesus. So that's the scene. Again, the Temple Mount, you couldn't get any more perfectly public than that about this issue. So Jesus turns the tables on them, and he asks them an opening question. This question is not a, a theological stumping kind of question. It's a simple question. But here's the deal. He's, gonna, he's setting the table. He's opening the door. He's setting a trap because he knows that they don't know the answer like they should. And, and when Jesus says, uh, who is the Christ, what does Christ mean? Is that Jesus' last name? It's not I say that, but some people really do. And that's, heck, when I was, when I was a new Christian, I thought it was his last name. Joseph Christ is, you know, that's, I didn't get that. But what does Christ mean? Messiah, it means it's the Greek word for Messiah. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. And the Greek word is actually Christos, but it's the, you know, it's the translation. It's the same word. Okay, it means what? Anointed one, okay? And the Jewish mind is the promised one who is to come, who is of the descendant of David. Because David was given a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a descendant. Part of the prophecy was really referring to Solomon, because he would build his house, but then he talks about he will, he will rule forever, so it didn't mean Solomon, it meant somebody else, someone else who was to come. That we see promises all the way through the Old Testament about the son of David who is to come, okay? So he asked them a simple question, all right, but it's now Jesus going on the offense. We're going to watch this unveil here, unravel for us, all right? 
Oh, oh yeah, actually, I got to read this part here. But today, I want you to notice something here. When Jesus interacts with his opponents, because this is something that's gone on, because I can, I, you know, maybe some of you are the same way. I can get frustrated with people if they're always attacking me. And I can turn into, I want to fight kind of mode. Any of you react like that after a while? Everyone do this, because you do eventually. Some of you quicker, maybe like some of you, you, you will. Okay, but here's the deal. How did Jesus respond? Look at, look at his patience. Look at his graciousness. Matter of fact, look at how he responds even to that lawyer <laughs> in the passage previous to this. He was very kind to him. And he told him, hey, you're not far from the kingdom. Again, I want us to consider that because here's the deal. We are supposed to have the same gentleness and respect. When we interact with people who aren't believers, we are supposed to not back away. Okay? Some of us, you know, sometimes you feel like, oh, I don't know what to do. You know what? Just do your best. Do your best. If you're going to stand up for the Lord and give an answer with gentleness and respect, doing your best, can God use that? Here's the deal. If you're standing up for the Lord, I'm going to tell you something because Jesus promised you will be used. Even if you think you give a stumbling, bumbling answer, God will use it. Don't back down. Do your best. And, and you know, if the person you're talking to is so super intelligent that you're so intimidated, just do your best. And if they ask you something you don't answer, you know, I don't know. That's, that's a really good question. Let me find out and get back to you. But do it with gentleness and respect. You do not have to win the argument. You just need to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks. Just be ready and just to do it. Do your best. Is that okay? Some of the best arguments I've heard have come out from out of the mouths of the newest believers. And, and who's that speaking, by the way? It's God speaking through you. He will use you. Don't back down. So see Jesus. He never backed down. He always answered from Scripture, but he also answered with graciousness firmly. But again, it was his goal was to redeem the lost, not fight the lost. Yes, our goal in life is not to win battles against people. The battles we have, our, our battles are not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's who we fight. We don't fight people. We're trying to redeem the people. Jesus said he was known as the friend of sinners, right? The Pharisees were the ones who excluded the sinners, the unclean. Jesus came to the unclean, and he didn't become unclean. He made them clean. He came, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. We have the same goal. It's not to fight people, it's to redeem. It's to give them a gracious answer, to do our best, and then let God do the work. Amen? But that is why we need to include the word in our answer, because Isaiah 55 does say, Isaiah 55, 10 is a great one. Second, or, uh, oh gosh, there's so many. Uh, James, well, all these passages say, look, the word of God is powerful because it's from God, and it will do the work God wants it to do. It will never return empty. Void is the word void. It, when you say the word of God, it's going to do the work he wants it to do. You may not see it, but do it anyways. Trust that God, the God of the universe, the one who spoke it into existence, 
will do what he wants to do. We just get to be the people who he uses, right? All right? So if someone asks you a question you don't want to answer, what are you supposed to do? Do your best. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> How do you get in here? Oh, ask me, oh, brother. <laughs> do your best. Tell them, hey, I don't have a quick answer for you. Let me, let me think about it, and I'll get back to you. And just say, you know what? But I know there is an answer because I know God is true, and God's ways are always best. Just say something like that, and then ask if you can pray for him. Turn the tables, right? Okay, so let's, let's move on to the next thing here. So that's the, Jesus goes on the offense here, and then we see in the Pharisees' response. They actually have an accurate response, but it's incomplete, and that's the whole point. They said, the Pharisees said to Jesus, the son of David. Good. All right. The undeniable consensus was that the Messiah was to be from the line of David. Couldn't be more clear in Scripture. All right. The Pharisees were correct. All right. And there's all these verses that show it out of the, out of the Hebrew Bible. But as, the Jew, as Jesus will show, their understanding, though biblical, was incomplete. But that incompleteness is where everything changes. Jesus will show that the Messiah was much more than just a man who was a descendant of David. And also, when we, he gets to the second question, we can't miss this too. Because again, in this portion, the Messiah had to be a man of Torah. He could not just be some mere, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, oh gosh, the word. What's the opposite of expert? Novice, gosh, thank you. The word is just right there. The Messiah had to show that, one, he lived by God's word, but he also knew how to teach God's word. He had to be an expert. That was part of what they were expecting, biblically, okay? And Jesus, in his second question about this, who is this, uh, this Messiah supposed to be, his second question absolutely blows up their understanding and shows him to be the master of Torah. So don't miss that in his answer, or I mean, his second question to them. The teacher has drawn them into his test, right? It's a simple, who's, you know, whose son is the, you know, the Messiah? You know, simple question. But in this, again, remember it's a public confrontation. He's going to show to the crowds that were there on the Temple Mount, the Jewish crowds, that he was the true teacher. Because remember, the Pharisees were considered the teachers of the people. He was going to show, I'm the true teacher. You should be listening to me. Okay, this is so important, what's happening in this scene. And this is why it closes the last public confrontation that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Because after that, chapter 23, he now pronounces prophetic doom on them. Woes. The next chapter, oh man, Jesus just gloves are off, folks. Boom, 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 boom. And then after that, he goes into the, escal you know, the, the end times type of stuff. And then after that, we have the, you know, the, 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 everything speeds up and he gets arrested. He gets betrayed and the trials and the crucifixion. Everything's just speeding up now. But this closes the section saying, I'm the true shepherd of Israel, the one promised in Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm the one who's the true teacher of, of Torah. Listen to me, follow me, and I'm going to show you out of Torah that the Messiah was supposed to be divine. Wow. So here, before we move on, there's something that we have to make sure we, we understand is that many, many people today have all sorts of different beliefs about who Jesus is. 
Uh, the Mormons say that Jesus was just a spirit child of the God of this world. There's many gods and many worlds and all that. And matter of fact, uh, some say that, oh, he was the brother of Lucifer. There's others, you know, I, I was, I, sometimes I find some really uh, funny things going on. But did you guys know that in the United States, one out of, more than one out of three people in the U.S., uh, US believe that there's UFOs and we've been visited by extraterrestrials. Did you know that? Over a third of the people in the United States, while only 10% believe in the God of the Bible. Which one's harder to believe? I don't know. Let me, let me, let me tell you about this. There's just some funny, <laughs> I found some really cool, uh, well, funny. There's some called the Aetherius Society, founded by a, a man named uh, King, in 1954, he was a, a George King, a, he was a London cab driver, and he claimed to have been visited by these extraterrestrials, and, and he said that this Aetherius Society, that Jesus is part of a group called the Cosmic Masters, among them being Confucius, Krishna, and Buddha. And, and Master Jesus lives on the higher planes of Venus, and with this Master Aetherius, who's actually higher than Jesus, and um, so that's what he says about Jesus. And then there's a group called uh, Theosophy. They're pretty new age. They've been around a while under Helena Blavatsky. And this Jesus, is he was just a, an allegory. He was a deified personification of the glorified type of hiero, hierophants of the temples. <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up. This is stuff they, people, some people believe in this. Then there's the Raelian movement. And, um, oh man, again, I, you sound like, okay, this sounds like a science fiction novel. It is. <laughs> but people believe in this. And, and this is just one, you know, little tidbits of a whole group. A third of Americans believe in some kind of UFO extraterrestrials that, that they're actually our original creators who are really benevolent creators who are going to return one day to just save us from ourselves and the pollution and wars. And they make no moral demands on us. It's just to help us get over ourselves, to help us evolve to a higher state like they are. And you'd be surprised when I start going down the list of who believes in this kind of new age, almost science fiction type of stuff. It's amazing. Um, it's, it's amazing. Anyways, so we have, if you talk about Jesus in the United States, we cannot assume they believe in the same Jesus that we say. You can't assume that, okay? We have to let Scripture be, be the one that tells us who He is. So let me ask you this. What is your source for the truth? Okay, and praise God you say that, but let me ask you this. How often do you read it? Would you recognize a counterfeit? Because some of these versions, I mean, uh, uh, you're talking to Mormons. Oh, yeah, we believe Jesus is the Savior. He died for our sins. You know, they will say that. Matter of fact, at our men's Bible study, you know, what, about a year ago? I'm looking where's, well, Mike's not in here, but you're, some of you are there. They actually said those words. They said it straight away. We believe that about Jesus. But they don't believe what Jesus, as to his identity, as to who he was, fully God, fully man. And when we say fully God, we mean the God of the whole universe. See, we, they don't believe that, and it changes, but because they get that wrong, where are they saved? No, they're not. They have a works salvation. You do stuff to be saved, and the Jesus they believe in is not accurate. 
Folks, we have to let God speak through His Word, and then we have to know it ourselves. You shouldn't depend on me for your feeding. Once a week is great, but you have to be reading for yourselves. And you should be doing classes like the Bible survey to ask questions, kind of put things together. You should be reading and reading and just learning. You have a whole lifetime to learn, but don't stop learning, okay? So we need the word, and so that's, that's my little push on that one there. But let's look at what happens in verses 43 through 45. And here we have Jesus' revelation about, uh, just as he asked this question, he reveals something about the Messiah. And in this, he shows himself to be the master teacher, but also true, we see there's an eternal truth in his question here. It's an amazing thing that he does. So uh, he said to them, how is it then that David, King David, the right, okay, in the spirit, we'll talk about that phrase in just a second. That's an important phrase, in the spirit calls him, meaning his son, meaning the Messiah, calls the Messiah Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He asked them that question. Jesus now, in front of everybody, draws out, draws out a question from another answer, and he opens up the scripture that blows the lid off of their understanding of the Messiah. But let me talk about what in the Spirit is referring to here real quickly, okay? Here, Jesus is affirming what's called the inspiration of Scripture. What does that mean? Okay, inspiration of Scripture means that God used men to record exactly what he wanted to be written. But here's the deal. He did not use these men over 40 authors, over almost 1,500 years. He did not use them as robots, Okay, he used these men using their unique personalities and experiences and life situation to record exactly what he wanted recorded. And people say, well, how could that happen? Man's so fallible and all that. But here's the deal. If God wanted to do something and he wanted it recorded accurately, could he do it? Everyone say yes. <laughs> because God, who knows how to communicate, who created man, who knows all our ins and outs and how sinful we can be, still knows how to get across his message clearly, accurately, and without mistake. Okay? There's all sorts of other issues you can bring up, the inerrancy of Scripture and infallibility, but I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to treat it with this for right now, just uh, the inspiration of Scripture. I liken it to, because there's a passage, I love this passage, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. There's one passage that talks about this. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not man as the origin. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a great passage. How many of you have ever been river rafting? Anyone? Okay, so you're, in a, you're in, a, in a raging river. Let's say it's a class four. Okay, I used to take my, my high schoolers on class four, and, I, and sometimes I went with one group once where I wore a wetsuit, and I hopped out, and I was pulling people in with me. It was just kind of fun. But you're in these, these scary parts. I didn't do it in the scary parts. But there's, there's scary parts where you're going. You've got the guide yelling out directions and stuff. Who's carrying you along? Is it your rowing? No, it's the river. It's that current's taking you, right? But can you move side to side and find the right course to go with the guide? Okay, so here's the deal. The Holy Spirit's the current. Our unique personalities and life experiences, well, not ours, but the writers of the, of the scriptures, 
their unique personalities, their unique life experiences, their unique uh, uh, intention. For instance, Matthew had one intention for his gospel, John another. God used those. The Holy Spirit carried them along, but they had uniqueness in how they recorded it, right? When you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it's unmistakable that that is John because he has a real circular way of reasoning things. But when you read the epistles of Paul, it's very much A, B, C, D, E. It's point after point, right? Well, that's, that's what's behind this. David was in the spirit being carried along to, to record exactly what he wanted. And again, this whole thing about in the spirit, there's multiple passages. I have more. You can see them up there. We're going to keep moving here. So that's, that's a side here. So Jesus... In quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, he is challenging these Pharisees, will you let Scripture challenge you and have authority over you? Because that's the issue here. He is going to bring up something about Scripture that they all knew. They all knew Psalm 110, and they all agreed, for the most part, that it was messianic. Okay, and I have in my notes, if you want more on this, but the whole, the whole point is that he's challenging to say, look, you don't understand this. Will you now hear the explanation and will you submit to it? That's the underlying issue here. Is Scripture truly your authority? Let me read you Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That's He's talking about him as a king. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you remember my sermons from Hebrews, we, we talked about Melchizedek several times. He's a very important figure. Okay? So... Psalm 110 in the first three verses says he's going to be a special king. And also in verse 4, he's also going to be a priest. No king in Jewish history had those two roles. I've talked about this before. They were not allowed to have the two roles. Who could be a priest in Israel? Those who were the descendants of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. The king of Israel could only be from the line of David, who was of the tribe of Judah. And yet, in Psalm 110, we see that the coming Messiah was going to have a special kind of lineage. He was the son of David, but he was called uh, by David. He called him my Lord. But then also, he was going to be a priest, not of the Aaronic line, but of the Melchizedekian line. That's a longer explanation, but the whole point is that Jesus is both priest and king, but it was prophesied out of the Old Testament. Because what does Hebrews say about Jesus that he does today? He stands as our what? He's our high priest who is our advocate at the right hand of the Father. He's our high priest who's compassionate, who understands us in our weaknesses, and yet he calls us to come to the throne of grace for help in our time of need, Hebrews 4. He is unique. He's, so, he's showing out of the Old Testament that this Messiah was much more than just a political king. Because verse 4 says he was going to be a priest. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Oh, man. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's a picture of verse 7 of total victory. This king priest is going to have total victory over the whole earth. Had that ever happened in Jewish history at this point, when Jesus is quoting this? Never. It was to be the king who was going to come, but the king was much more than a man. He was also the king priest. He was also eternal, and let me show you why. David wrote this psalm around, we'll say, 1000 B.C. He was king from 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C., 40 years he wrote Psalm 110 somewhere in there, and he said, he, he quoted, in the spirit, the Lord, meaning Yahweh, that's what he used, Yahweh said to my Lord, wait a second, and the word in the Hebrew says, it's, is saying, so David is saying God said to his descendant, David's own descendant was alive already with God, seated, seated where? at the right hand of the Father. So David is saying that his descendant is his Lord who's alive while he's saying this. How could that be? If he was a mere descendant who was a man, he hadn't even been created yet. But this Messiah is someone different. That's the point he's drawing out. Look at what he says. I have to jump over some of this stuff. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? That's a great question. It's one that the Pharisees had never considered. And Jesus is showing from this psalm that the, this Messiah to come was much more than a man. He was divine, pre-existing. Amazing stuff. David calls his own descendant his Lord. That right there says, is, is enough to confuse them. He's, he's writing, he's referring to his descendant as alive when David wrote this psalm. Alive in heaven with God, no descendant who was a mere man could have been alive. And he's seated in the top position of authority and power and reign. And then, then Jesus asked them in verse 45, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? That's, the, that's just the trap slamming shut on these Pharisees. Here Jesus draws together the two pictures of the Messiah. One that they've already affirmed, the Messiah is to be the descendant of David, a man. But Jesus shows that based on Psalm 110, their understanding is incomplete. This Messiah is more than a man. The Messiah is both God and man. Jesus has a dual nature. He's 100% human as a descendant of David, and he's 100% God, and therefore he is the Lord. He is David's Lord. The implication is clear, but one that goes against the very grain of the Pharisees' beliefs, one they won't acknowledge nor accept, certainly not when it came to Jesus, because their estimation of Jesus, he was of the devil. 
Remember, they said by the powers, by what power do you, you know, they're saying the powers that he did this were from Beelzebub. They claimed he was satanic. There's no way they would see this passage now, Psalm 110, be confronted with it, and there's no way they would follow. They had made up their minds. Forget what the scriptures say. We're right. Whew. It's in a bad place to be. The teacher has shown he knows Torah. The evidence is clear. Jesus is the true interpreter. Will they follow? But let's see what verse 46 says. We see they're defeated, but there's eternal consequences. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. What did they go do? They plotted his murder. That's what they went and did. But here's the deal. Jesus has been vindicated. That's what this section closes up showing. He has answered every question and left his opponents speechless and defeated. The, word, the words that was says no one, no one is able to answer him, that word is dunamai. They had no power left to answer him. They were utterly defeated. Jesus is demonstrated by his teaching authority and his power, and he's exposed the false shepherds of Israel. He's demonstrated his righteous zeal for his father's house and cleansing it, and now he demonstrates his righteous understanding of the law. Their response, they went to plot and murder and reject. Now, thankfully, we see in Acts 15, we find out a lot of Pharisees later became Christians. It's really cool. But many didn't. And there's eternal consequences for their reaction. In stark contrast is Peter, right? Who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? You're the Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Son means having the same nature and attributes. Your deity. He got it right. It's hard for him to understand, but he got it right. Jesus' identity on this Wednesday, his identity and authority and power are confirmed on the Temple Mount. Finally, they see it, but the next public event, where everyone sees this Jesus, he's on trial and he'll be crucified. So as we close today, what do you say about Jesus when you're confronted about, with his claim about being God? Oh, he's a good teacher. Oh, he was a really moral and upright man. Folks, that's not enough. I've read you that quote from C.S. Lewis many times. Jesus did not leave that option. Either he's a liar or he's a crazy man, liar, lord, or lunatic. Those are the three options you have. Either he is who he says he is, or you have to write him off as crazy or a big liar. What you do with Jesus as Savior decides your eternity. What you do with Jesus as Lord decides, decides your day-to-day decisions. Will you keep following, even if you don't understand everything perfectly? I mean, I love, you know, Callie, we've talked about this. So I don't know how, how did God get all those animals on the ark? Folks, you know, there's all sorts of questions like that. Those are good to ask, but that should not keep you from following Jesus. There's answers for every question you do have. Many, many godly men and women have taken time to answer. There's tons of books with answers. We will find you the answers. But will you trust this Lord Jesus? And then what what do you do with Scripture will decide your confidence and your conversations? Confidence. 
The Word gives the only accurate description of reality. Do you start with God's reality coming from a biblical framework on how you see people, the events of our times, your guide for decision-making? Do you believe God's Word is the best? And I use that in quotes. Do you believe it's the best truth or the, the real truth or not? That's why I challenge you. When people ask you questions, your first thing has to be, what does God say? Because you know what? Now you're going to the right source for answer. Otherwise, if you answer from here, what you think, you're, it's just an opinion. That's why more and more you should say, well, what does the Bible say on this issue, that issue, this issue, that issue, that topic? Learn. The Bible has given us everything we need for life and godliness, 1 Peter 1, 2 through 4. And that will give you confidence because God said if someone disagrees with you, if they disagree with what the Bible says, their fight's not with you. Who's it with? God. He's going to win. Introduce them to God. And then conversations. Yeah, again, I, I've talked about this. You know, when, when just try to bring God's word into your conversations more and more. That'll give you, that'll, that, again, that's the promise we have in God's word is that we bring his word into our conversation. There will be fruit. There will be. He promises it. We don't know what it's going to be, but get better at it. The way that you get better at it is you start reading more, and then you start asking questions. Well, I need to find out more about, oh, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does it say about abortion? What does it say about anger? What does it say about cussing? What does it say about this? What does it say about that? Just start learning. You've got a lifetime, right? Lord, I just pray that we would be just, well, one, just... To, just amazed at who you are, God, and, and that we would be drawn to you through your word to know you better, to enjoy you, to taste and see that the Lord is good. God, I thank you that we have hope always because of who you are and what you've done, and we have hope always for life because we can look to your word for guidance. Lord, help us to be better, uh, a, a people better prepared to give an answer, a people better um, well, just more confident because we know your word and we know that there's answers there. And Lord, help us be better uh, prepared to help each other face these issues of life. God, thank you that we're in this together. Thank you for the people that you have blessed me with, this church here, our friends. God, I thank you that we can walk through this life together in your ways with you leading us and with us helping each other by the power of, of your spirit, Lord. So we love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're Folks, have a great week. <laughs> I Son of God, Kids are here. Bless you. Bless you all. <laughs> There's a lot of snacks in the back. Please eat. <laughs> 